on a hot, humid afternoon. In August 2003, Ardith Wood borrowed her brother's bike and ventured out along the wooded bicycle trails in Ottawa, Ontario. But when a heavy afternoon thunderstorm swept through the area and Ardith failed to return home, her family began to worry. As night fell, their concern turned into fear. In less than a week, Ardith's loved one's worst fears would be realized. Join me now as we take a look into the disappearance of Ardith Wood. We'll discover how the determination of police managed to close a case that had hardly a shred of forensic evidence. A chance meeting with a sexual predator that in its wake would leave a gaping hole in the Wood family and a community forever changed. Twenty-seven-year-old Ardith had spent most of her life in school and was celebrated for her academic accomplishments before pursuing her Ph.D. in philosophy at the University of Waterloo. She received a bachelor's degree and a master's degree from Carleton University in Ottawa. She not only earned scholarships throughout her graduate school career, but she also found the time to edit IDOS, the Canadian Graduate Journal of Philosophy and participate in graduate conferences and associations. When she was accepted into her Ph.D. program, Ardith was a recipient of the Provost Doctoral Scholarship. By August of 2003, Ardith was two and a half years into her doctoral program and wanted to become a philosophy professor who specialized in metaphysics and ancient philosophy. There was, however, much more to Ardith than her intelligence. Ardith was a beloved member of a tight-knit family, the loving daughter of Catherine and Brendan Wood, and a sister to Crispin and Colum. A devout Catholic, Ardith was also known for her positive attitude and work ethic. She also forged close friendships at school, although at first, her beauty and brilliance could be intimidating. Jill Oliver, who she met while they were both working as teaching assistants at the philosophy department, at the University of Waterloo, recalled her first impressions of Ardith. Was immediately intimidated by her. She was very tall and had long blonde hair. She always had interesting clothes on and she was beautiful. I didn't know what to expect and she turned out to be so much more warm and kind and considerate than I ever would have thought. On August 6th, 2003, Ardith spent the morning at the family home in Orleans a suburb just on the eastern outskirts of bustling Ottawa, the capital city of Canada. She was making the most of every moment of her school break. Before noon, Ardith had jogged five kilometers and then whipped up a dessert to have with the family after dinner that evening. At 2.30 p.m., Ardith decided to take her brother's hybrid bike for her first ride along Ottawa's bicycle trails before returning home for a shopping trip with her mom. When a heavy afternoon thunderstorm swept through the area and Ardith failed to return home, her family began to worry. They set out in search of her 
but with roughly 200 kilometers of bicycle paths in the Ottawa area, and no idea where Ardith was headed, they were quickly overwhelmed. When darkness fell, panic set in, and Ardith's family reached out to the police for help. The Wood family then contacted friends and neighbors to help find Ardith, and early the next morning, the search began in earnest. Before long, the largest search in the history of Ottawa took place. Sergeant Brad Hampson of the Ottawa Police Service and the search manager on Ardith's case reflected back on the scope of the search for her. You would have seen helicopters, search and rescue technicians from Trenton, he said, and then hundreds of trained search and rescue personnel. On top of that, you had the actual police officers, untrained search personnel. It ended up being almost close to a thousand people that showed up within a few days. The frantic search for Ardith ramped up even further as the days passed. Ottawa Police Sergeant Jenny Edge, co-lead on Ardith's missing persons case, explained why authorities were gravely concerned for her safety. She said, when you're talking about a young woman who has had no police involvement and has led a very normal, average, well-behaved lifestyle, it complicates things greatly right from the very beginning. It looked from very early on that it was a stranger abduction and they're not easy to solve because there's nothing to link the victim to the offender. So you don't have a starting spot. Given Ardith's low risk lifestyle and the lack of suspects, the police turned to the public for help in the days following her disappearance asking if anyone had noticed anything out of the ordinary on the Ottawa trails the day Ardith had vanished. Almost within minutes, the phones at the police department began to ring off the hook, as numerous young women called in to report being approached by a disturbing, creepy man while out on the trails. One of the first callers was a young woman who reported that a man had attempted to aggressively lure her off the bicycle path into the bushes while she was using the trail in the Greens Creek area. Greens Creek flows from the Ottawa River and weaves through the agricultural lands and urban developments. Along its steep and lushy forested slopes are kilometers of bike paths that connect to the Ottawa River pathway. When the witness broke free and fled down the tree trail, the man pursued her until she had managed to bicycle to a more populated area. Only after she heard the news about Ardith's disappearance did she begin to realize just how lucky she had been. When the young woman sat down with the forensic artist, she provided enough information to produce a composite sketch of the suspect. He was a male in his 20s or early 30s, about 5 feet 11 inches tall with light brown hair and a goatee, a lean muscular build, and tanned skin. When Ardith's family and friends did not recognize the man from the sketch, the authorities decided not to release it. They were concerned it might sidetrack their investigation and generate false leads. Another break in the case occurred 
when a 16-year-old girl called in and told authorities she had witnessed Ardith arguing with a man on the bicycle path. On the very afternoon, she went missing. Co-lead in the case, Ottawa Police Sergeant Jerry Kinnear outlined what the 16-year-old girl had reported. He said that at first, she heard a scream. She then looked up and through the bush, she then saw Ardith speaking with a man who seemed very agitated and animated. She then saw Ardith and the suspect going down the path towards Greens Creek with their bikes. Even though the young woman had told authorities she had seen a man and woman arguing with each other from their bicycles and was very upset by the altercation, she was hesitant to intervene because she thought she might have only been witnessing a lover's quarrel. However, the situation was disturbing enough to her that she followed the man and woman down the trail for a bit, even though the weather was quickly turning from rain to a serious thunderstorm. A little further down, she said she had seen both bikes lying on the ground on the side of the path. She was so concerned that there was something wrong, she had her cell phone out and dialed 911. Tragically, the young witness decided not to hit send. As the thunderstorm worsened, she instead started to head home. As she was leaving, she heard another scream, but she kept going. Later, the witness identified the suspect from the composite drawing that had been put together after the previous witness had called in. Because both of the women had encountered the suspect in the Greens Creek area, the investigators were finally able to narrow down where to search for Ardith. Countless searchers focused their efforts on the vicinity of Greens Creek, and soon, their determination paid off. Four days after Ardith had disappeared, her bike was located in the muddy waters of Greens Creek. Sergeant Hampson, the search manager, noted how hard the divers had to work to find any trace of Ardith, given the challenging environment. The divers were actually working in extreme murky water, he said. I think they almost had zero visibility in there, and so they were just by hand and feel under the water, trying to locate any kind of evidence they could. He then said they got the information that a bicycle had been located that fit the description of the bike Ardith had been riding when she went missing. Locating Ardith's bike submerged in the creek indicated to authorities they were searching in the right spot, and any doubt that Ardith had not been met with foul play was all but dashed. Sergeant Kinnear knew that once Ardith's bike had been discovered, it was time to ramp up the search. They were getting close. It was then that they called the OPP and requested their cadaver dog. The very next day, on August 11, 2003, Ardith's nude body was found close to the bank of Greens Creek. Her body was on the ground, hidden in a recessed area behind two large trees, about 25 meters from the shore. The algae found in her lungs during the autopsy suggested 
that Ardeth had been drowned in the creek. The investigators were unable to find any forensic evidence of sexual assault. Upon hearing the news of her death, Ardeth's loved ones in the community were shaken to the core. What was once a missing person investigation turned into a long murder inquiry that would eventually cost police close to $675,000. After both the crime scene and Ardeth's remains had failed to yield any forensic evidence, no fingerprints, no DNA, and no trace evidence of any sort, the investigation was at a standstill. The police decided they had nothing to lose, so they released the composite sketch of the suspect they were keeping under wraps. This move yielded close to 1,000 tips in two days. The tips ranged from useful information from other women who had encountered the suspect on the Ottawa trail system while others were nothing but a wild goose chase. Then, on September 10th, investigators released an important detail about the suspect they had been withholding from the public. According to many of the witnesses who had been accosted on the bike paths, the suspect had a tattoo of a winged eagle on his upper left arm. More tips flooded in, but nothing useful that furthered the investigation. On July of 2004, nearly a year after Ardith had been murdered, the Ottawa police knew a sexual predator was on the loose, but were struggling to close the case due to a lack of forensic evidence. Authorities pleaded with the public for assistance and even offered a reward of $50,000 for information that resulted in the arrest and conviction of Ardith's killer. To date, that was the largest reward Ottawa police had ever announced. After this new publicity, the police received hundreds of new leads and added to their growing list of persons of interest. On the list was Christopher Myers. To most people, it was unsurprising that Christopher Myers' life followed the trajectory it did. Born on September 7, 1980, to an alcoholic mother, who also used drugs while pregnant, Myers struggled with a litany of serious conditions. According to his lawyer, Robert Carew, Myers suffered from an alphabet soup of neurological conditions, fetal alcohol syndrome, attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, pervasive development disorder, a spectrum of social and communication disorders that includes autism, and schizoid personality traits. During his early childhood, Myers was impacted every day by parental alcoholism and abuse, including being repeatedly battered when he was only two years old. But when he was four years old, he received a second chance at a safe and happy life when a loving Ottawa family adopted him. However, things did not work out as planned. Although he received extensive support and counseling, the Myers family 
returned their adopted son over to the Children's Aid Society when he was 12, declaring him unmanageable, with one of the counselors classifying Myers as the most disturbed child he had ever seen. After living in a string of foster homes, by 2000, Myers was homeless. Regardless, he persevered and soon managed to find minimum wage work through a work placement agency and moved into shared accommodations with some roommates. On the surface, Myers seemed to be living a relatively normal, although somewhat marginal, life. Even with him being noticeably inarticulate and his financial instability, he still managed to have a handful of girlfriends, although the relationships never lasted long. In 2000, three years after Ardith's disappearance, Myers had his first trouble with the law, with two counts of trafficking drugs. He eventually pled guilty to both counts in 2001, but shortly after in 2002, Myers was again charged with trafficking, and this time, a charge of possessing property obtained by crime was added. The charges were dropped after he pled guilty to breaching the conditions of his probation. Despite his troubled criminal past, in the summer of 2003, Myers was working as a dishwasher at a restaurant in the Byward Market in downtown Ottawa, one of the most popular tourist destinations in a city with over 50,000 visitors every weekend during the summer months. While on the job, Myers' co-workers didn't recall him showing any indication of anger or aggression issues. In fact, he rarely even talked to his co-workers. They considered him someone who never raised his voice, even when provoked. One of Myers' roommates, though, sensed that something was just not quite right about him. She kicked him out within weeks because she instinctively felt uncomfortable by his unbelievable stories. She stated, I knew that he had things he was hiding. He was a big liar. Myers was indeed hiding things from his roommates. He was a sexual predator who cruised the city streets and bicycle paths, looking for prey. Although Myers met some of the suspect criteria, he closely resembled the composite sketch and spent a significant time on Ottawa's bike trails, Myers was able to provide investigators with an alibi for the day of Ardith's murder. He had previously told authorities he was at home in the late morning, which could be confirmed by his landlady, and then he headed out to work at the restaurant, clocking in around 3.30 p.m. Myers also did not have a bird tattoo, which numerous women had seen on the arm of the suspect prowling the pathways. On a warm summer night in 2004, a young pregnant woman encountered a man on the street and followed him back to his apartment to bum a cigarette. Just steps inside of the entrance, the man forced her into the basement laundry room and sexually assaulted her. Police strongly suspected Myers of the rape, but they lacked the evidence to charge him. When the investigators on Ardith's case learned about these suspicions, 
they were eager to take a second look at Myers for Ardith's murder. But he vanished before he could be questioned again. Finally, in February 2005, the authorities managed to track down Myers. Though the police rechecked his arms and confirmed he did not have a bird tattoo, they still had a gut feeling he was their man. Myers agreed to take a polygraph test to clear his name, but failed to show up as promised. When the officers re-examined Myers' alibi for the day of Ardith's murder, they biked the route he would have taken and determined he had plenty of time to be seen by his landlady in the morning, bike to the Greens Creek area, kill Ardith, and then make it to work on time. However, once again lacking significant evidence, the authorities' hands were tied. On the evening of April 23, 2005, a young woman who bore a striking resemblance to Ardith was attacked while making her way home across the interprovincial bridge that connects Ottawa and Hull, Quebec. A young man on a bike approached her and tried to engage the woman in conversation. When she rebuffed his advances, he rode away. Suddenly, he stopped, turned back, and dragged the unsuspecting woman into the nearby bushes. After she managed to fight him off, he stole her purse and took off. When the crime was reported to police, it was entered into the system as a robbery. The investigators working on Ardith's case heard about the attack nearly a month after it occurred, and when they learned the details, they were left wondering if Myers had again slipped through their fingers. On May 11, 2005, in North Bay, Ontario, a city considered the gateway to the north, located almost 360 kilometers northwest of Ottawa, a woman who resembled Ardith, was attacked at approximately 4.15 a.m. as she was walking home. The man asked her for directions, which she provided, and then sent him on his way. He returned a few moments later and hauled her kicking and screaming into the bushes. When the victim fought back, he twisted her neck so violently she was terrified it would break. A nearby homeowner heard the victim's cries for help and intervened. When the assailant ran off, he left a critical clue a cell phone that police later discovered was registered to an Ottawa woman who, when they contacted, revealed it belonged to her son, Christopher Myers. Myers was eventually arrested in North Bay a few days later after the sexual assault when two Ottawa robbery investigators who happened to just be working in North Bay at the time heard the details of the crime they noticed the similarities between the attacker on the bridge and the suspect in Ardith's case and reached out to Ottawa police. Excited to finally have some kind of movement in the case, Sergeant Kinnear, co-lead on the case, headed to North Bay on May 15, 2005 to interview Myers. 
Once he arrived, the 70-minute interview with Myers commenced. Sergeant Kinnear described the encounter he had questioning Myers and how he managed to finally convince him to take the polygraph test he had successfully avoided for years. After entering the interrogation room, Kinnear said to Myers, I'm with the Ottawa police, and I want to talk to you about the Ardith Wood killing. Myers then responded by saying, Oh yeah? I've already been spoken to about that several times. The sergeant then explained to him that if he took the polygraph and it clears him, they would be off his tail. He told Myers, We just want you off our plate. Myers agreed to take the test. During the initial interview, Myers told Sergeant Kinnear that he had no idea where Greens Creek was located and had never been there. He discussed his struggles with mental illness. When pressed about his interactions with women, Myers made failed admissions about being sexually aggressive towards women when riding his bike on the pathways and the streets of Ottawa. Still lacking enough evidence to charge Myers with Ardith's murder, the polygraph was arranged. Roughly 12 hours later, when confronted with the fact that he had failed the five-hour polygraph test, Myers remained adamant he had not killed Ardith. Myers told the police, No matter what anyone says, whatever a machine says, I did not kill nobody, period. When Sergeant Kinnear interviewed Myers again after he failed the polygraph, Myers stressed that he didn't do this one. He argued, I know for a fact I wasn't there. Nothing will put me at the scene because I wasn't there. Even if Myers was guilty of multiple sexual assaults, the authorities knew they did not have enough evidence to charge him with killing Ardith. Sergeant Kinnear realized that with the absence of forensic evidence, Myers' fate rested on whether or not he made a statement implicating himself in Ardith's murder. For the next five months after Myers failed the polygraph, the police worked hard to build a case against him. They interviewed his brother and visited Myers numerous times, trying to rattle him and hoping it would compel Myers to discuss his involvement in the case. When authorities questioned his ex-girlfriend, she told police Myers was physically abusive to her and sexually aggressive with her friends. She also confirmed that Myers frequented Ottawa's bike trails and rode his bicycle late into the night on the city streets. His ex-girlfriend also solved a mystery that had been plaguing the case from the beginning. She told police Myers loved wearing temporary stick-on tattoos and often wore one similar to the bird tattoo seen by the witnesses in Ardith's case. More than two years after Ardith's murder, the investigators decided they had collected all the possible evidence they could against Myers, and now it was time to get a confession. On October 13, 2005, this task fell on Sergeant Major Martin Graham, an expert interviewer with the Ontario Provincial Police. He explained the different tactics used 
to try to get Myers to talk, eventually shifting from an aggressive approach to acting like a confidant. With this new supportive approach, Sergeant Major Graham compelled Myers to make a partial confession. Although he did not confess to killing Ardith, he did admit to being with Ardith on the day she was killed and that he had hugged and kissed her. Myers was then asked to draw a map of where this interaction took place. After Myers drew the map that contained details only Ardith's killer would know, the investigators felt they finally had enough to arrest him for murder. Sergeant Major Graham told Myers he was going to be charged with physically causing Ardith's death. Although only Myers truly knows what occurred between Ardith and himself on that stormy afternoon in August 2003, the police have a theory. They think when Ardith left for her bike ride, she made her way down Orleans Boulevard, past Corrine Wilson High School, to get to the bike path, then headed west along the Ottawa River. She was only 10 kilometers away from arriving home safely when she ran into Myers around 1.30 p.m. Myers intended on sexually assaulting Ardith, but when he dragged her down to the creek and forced her to undress, Ardith broke free and attempted to swim away. Myers caught Ardith, drowned her, and fled. Although Myers may have never intended to kill Ardith, her death was the tragic outcome. In October of 2005, when Myers was charged with Ardith's murder, as well as a slew of other unrelated sexual assaults, four in Ottawa and one in North Bay, he initially pleaded not guilty to all charges and withdrew his admission he was with Ardith on the afternoon she was killed. However, after numerous pretrial motions resulting in Myers' interview statements being admissible in court, he decided it was time to make a deal. On January 8, 2008, four and a half long years after Ardith was killed, Myers pled guilty to second-degree murder and to a string of sexual crimes. The terms of the deal specified that Myers was sentenced to life in prison, but he would be eligible for parole in 10 years. The soonest release time possible for a second-degree murder conviction, with credit for time served, Myers would have been eligible for parole in the fall of 2015. While striking the deal, Myers' lawyer leveraged his troubled past and numerous mental health and developmental issues. Myers' lawyer portrayed him as a simple, troubled guy, even though doctors had determined his intelligence level was average and his IQ fell in the normal range. Ardith's mother, father, brothers, and extended family attended the hearing, with some family members even flying into town to show their support. At the sentencing, Catherine, 
Ardith's mother, read a statement that detailed the tremendous impact Ardith's death had on the Wood family. Catherine told the court her greatest joy was bringing Ardith home as a baby from the hospital, and her greatest sorrow was putting her 27-year-old daughter's body in a grave. Too emotional to speak in court, Ardith's father Brendan asked the Crown to read a statement. It stressed the blackness that had engulfed their family ever since Ardith's body was found. Outside of the courtroom after the hearing, Ardith's mother addressed the media, demonstrating a level of selflessness and concern for others that likely moved many to tears. God desires not the death of the sinner, but that he be converted and live. It's sad to see a man so young have this happen to him, and he had a very different life from the very beginning. So I just hope that his prison years will help him to reform, and that he can pay back the debt, perhaps, that he owes to his mother, who has been with him through all this. It must be very difficult for her. When asked what she thought of Meyer's deal and the outcome of the hearing, Catherine replied, A trial is always an uncertain thing. It was going to be a lengthy trial, a complex trial. This is an acceptance by him. This is an admission by him. And he is the person who killed Ardeth Wood. The impact of Ardeth's murder in broad daylight on a well-traveled bike path is still felt in Ottawa today. Many locals think twice before heading out on the capital's trails. Ardeth's father explained why her death has had such a lasting effect on the city. Ardeth Wood was laid to rest on Wednesday August 6th, 2003, in Ottawa's beautiful Notre Dame Cemetery. More than 600 people attended her funeral service, with another thousand paying tribute to Ardeth on the street outside, with flowers and notes. Although Ardeth's life was cut heartbreakingly short, her legacy continues. Yearly scholarships were awarded in her name at Carleton University and the University of Waterloo. And on August 6, 2004, the Ottawa community marked the one-year anniversary of Ardeth's murder by dedicating the majestic, over-hundred-year-old Bebs Oak Tree at the Dominion Arboretum to Ardeth. The dedication was spearheaded by workers at the Arboretum, where Ardith's brother Crispin had worked when he was a student. The plaque in honor of Ardith reads, For Ardith Mary Margaret Wood, 1976-2003, to 2003, her death touched the heart of a city. On September 27, 2017, a storm struck the area 
and ferocious winds tore a third of the trunk off of the Beb's oak. Though the tree's survival was questionable for a time, the oak, like Ardith's legacy, endures today. We'd like to give a special thank you to Christine Penhale for researching and writing this episode. You should check out her website, The True Crime Files, for in-depth articles on missing persons and unsolved murders. We'll provide a link to her website in the show notes. And thank you to Sophie H. for providing her voice as Jill Oliver. And now I would like to thank the following new Patreon supporters. AJM, Hannah, Rebecca M., Lindsay G., Victoria K., Hannah W., Christy G., our good friends Tony and George from the Dirty Bits podcast, Donna B., Kimberly S., Jill S., and Jamie G. And now I would like to introduce two podcasts, Murder and Such. My name is Hunter. And I'm Haley. And we're your hosts of Murder and Such, a podcast about true crime, serial killers, and other dark subject matter. Join us while we fill your ear holes with some crappy comedy and disgusting tales. You can now find us on Spotify, iTunes, Stitcher, Podbean, and all of your podcatcher services. You can like us on Facebook, Instagram, and follow us on Twitter. At Murder and Such. Hope to hear from you guys soon. Bye. Bye. And Dark Poutine. Have you been bludgeoned to death with Ted Bundy stories? Are you choking on too many Hillside Strangler podcast episodes? As awesome as those are, cleanse your palate and add something new to your true crime diet. Why not try some Dark Poutine, a podcast from north of the 49th parallel? We cover Canadian crimes and dark histories. Some of the stories you may know nothing about, but they beg to be told. And, with Canada being the biggest, small country on the planet... We even have personal connections to some of the crimes and history we chat about. Join two real live Canadians every week as we serve up another helping of dark poutine. We are substantially creepy, sometimes meaty, always cheesy, but very rarely sorry. So come on up north and fill your ears with some dark poutine. Minds of Madness can be found on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, TuneIn, Google Play, and all other podcast platforms. Ad-free episodes of this show are available on Stitcher Premium. If you would like to support this show and get some extra perks, including extra content, early release, and ad-free episodes, go to patreon.com slash madnesspod. You can find our website by going to mindsofmadnesspodcast.com. To find us on Facebook and Instagram, search The Minds of Madness, and on Twitter, using the handle at MadnessPod. 
And finally, the closing track, Feel the Madness, is provided by The Funkors. You can find them at the record label's website by going to goldenerrorecords.com.au slash G-E. Someone's standing at my door I hope they can't get in cause